Welcome to Pensive Series. Rob Neal is a CEO and associate founder of Singularity University. He brings a unique entrepreneurial and globally focused approach to growing a non-traditional university as a platform to create a future of abundance where exponential technologies empower us to solve the global grand challenges. Prior to Singularity, he co-founded Velocity 11 in 1999, building automation equipment and robotics for cancer research and drug discovery. After being acquired by Agilent Technologies in 2007, he traded the CEO role for a general manager role, attempting to be a catalyst for change at a big company. He gave up in 2009 to go surfing and eventually find his true calling and biggest challenge yet with Singularity University. He is a director at Harman and Light in Motion. He is also a co-founder and director of Elite Designs, an active angel investor and advisor, and holds degrees in mechanical, material science, and manufacturing engineering from UC Davis and Stanford University. Uh, where, where did you grow up? Um, I actually grew up in, in Sacramento, California, um, in a pretty uh, rural area just outside of the city. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting place. It's about as far away from Silicon Valley is as uh, the Midwest is. I think it's really pretty interesting. <laughs> how is it? How is it like growing up there? Uh, well, I actually grew up in a relatively poor uh, neighborhood that was very much the intersection of um, there was a pretty tough um, black ghetto, a strong uh, agriculture immigrant population. Uh, old school like KKK <laughs> white power community um, and then just a weird mix so it was pretty rough it was actually a pretty rough rough environment to grow up in um, and yeah re relatively re relatively poor so um, <laughs> now, now living in Silicon Valley it is such a different world such a different world so then when you finished high school how did you think about like your life and where you wanted to go next you know, interestingly, I I um, I was like one of the few that escaped <laughs> that that world. Um, I, I think at my class in high school it was like three hundred students in high school, and then only about three went off to university. So not a great track record, right? Um, you know, many more went to community college, and probably some of them went on to university later. But um, for me, the <laughs> the, it, the most telling point was my. I would, you know, I was like one of the top three students. I had basically straight A's in high school and played sports and other stuff. And and my college career counselor told me after I took you know assessment tests and I did okay on SATs and other things. Um, but I was I was a straight A student. Like I was top in the class. And and um, my career counselor told me I shouldn't waste my time and money applying to universities because I probably won't get in. So I should just go to community college. And I was like, wow, that's what you're telling me? What are you telling everyone else? <laughs> like, really? So that was a really good sign of, like, how uh, small-minded, I think, most people were there, right? There was not really any... No one there had a connection to or visibility into another way of living or another world. Um, obviously, this is before the Internet, so um, we didn't have access to, to easily seeing how other people might lead their lives and live and, and other paths. So you're, uh, most people felt trapped and they, they sort of were trapped. And, and I somehow didn't have that mindset. I, I was really fortunate to never have that limitation. And 
I did go off to university and I did meet lots of new people and I just kept exploring sort of the next steps. Um, I ended up going to UC Davis, which is not very far away, um, but uh, I used that as a launching off point to meeting just lots of incredible people and exploring things I was excited about. Was there a particular formative experience when you were there? At university? I'm, I'm sure there was a, you know, a thousand different formative experiences. Um, probably the most uh, leading one sort of really took me to where I am today was um, walking into freshman physics. Um, I was studying engineering, and so um, I walk into this, this physics class first day, literally first day, I think, of the class, and there's this really loud, boisterous guy just raving about this flying car thing that he's doing. He just got a big internship, and and I overheard it, and I had been doing some research about this company called Mahler International, which is kind of famous for being the first company really actually trying to build flying cars, and they built a bunch that as prototypes. And I, I was trying to summon up the courage to go and meet this company, and, and because this was like third quarter, so it was leading into the summer. Um, and, and I'm overhearing this guy, and I'm overhearing that he got an internship, and I'm like, what? And so I, so I literally went straight over and sat next to him and, and started talking to him about it. And, uh, you know, next thing we know, I'm also interning there, and, and then um, he and I become best very long uh, uh, have a deep friendship um, then we become business partners we start our first business building robots and and um, uh, automation for drug discovery and cancer research we build that up pretty successfully over about 10 years uh, then we sold that business right and I ended up, he ended up leaving to start another little thing and then I left and I ended up getting involved with Singularity University um, Actually, I started a couple of little things along the way, but then I, I, then I got involved with um, Singularity University, and he went back and launched a new flying car company. So he's literally building flying cars in the way they should be done. Wow. Yeah, so it's really, really fun. So for me, like taking the, like just keeping my ears open for opportunities, recognizing that this was, you know, somebody interesting talking about something that I might be interested in, and then taking the initiative to just go and meet him and find out what he's doing um, and not being stuck in being jealous of something that he got that I didn't but just you know opening up to finding out more about him and what he was doing and it turned into a you know a lifelong friendship wow yeah what was the founding story or like how did you start the, the, your first, first company? company yeah you know interesting um, I sort of cheated I would say um when I, I went, ended up going to grad school, I ended up working at that flying car company for a couple of years after I graduated undergrad. Um, and then I went, so my best friend, his name's Joe Ben, um, when we graduated at UC Davis, he went to Stanford directly to grad school. I decided to work for a couple of years and I worked at the flying car company. Uh, then I ended up going to Stanford in grad school. And while I was at Stanford, he ended up he was consulting and he was out, you know, he just graduated and he was out doing other things. And so I'm in grad school and he ends up doing a little consulting project at this pharmaceutical company. And he's like, Rob, we, we need help. Can you just come and do some design work for us? I was like, great. So I got a consulting gig with him um, and we just started working on projects. 
basically it was moonlighting while I was at Stanford, helped pay for Stanford, very expensive school. Um, and then over the course of the two years of my, my getting my degree, um, I did a lot of projects. And then when I left Stanford, I signed on full time and I went to, to work at the company is called Insight Pharmaceuticals. And we were essentially working with scientists, building, redesigning uh, brackets and helping optimize processes in the research lab. And then we proposed some ideas about how do we could integrate robots, and then we proposed some ideas about how we could build new robots. And our budget just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, to the point where at, eventually the CEO came and said, uh, turns out you guys are spending a lot of money building robots. <laughs> what are you doing? And, and he loved us. He thought we were doing great work, but they're not a robotics company and they shouldn't be spending, you know, five, ten million dollars on robots. No. So um, it was helping their labs do work that no one else could do. So we were giving them a capability that didn't exist anywhere else. Um, and, they, and they were actually able to use that capability to promote for their customer base. Like people were excited about the technology capacity that they had and was differentiating. Um, and, and he... Uh, but the president at the time is like, look, we love you guys. You're doing great work, but we're going to have to look at this budget going forward. And if you want to propose an alternative structure, and we've been, I just came out of Stanford. This is 1998, 99. Uh, dot-com boom is insane. I've got the dot-com bug. I want to start a startup, right? Um, and so... I had probably five different business plans that I was working on on the weekends and at night, yeah. thinking about a new business I would start while I was working at this pharmaceutical company. And one of the, so this president basically said, look, if you guys are interested in doing something else, we would entertain it. And so we wrote up a business plan that we would essentially leave the business, we would license the technology we had developed, and we'd go off on our own. So that's what we did. We ended up... Uh, spinning out of the business. Uh, we gave them a minority stake. We took all the patents uh, that we had developed. We had about 20 different patents I think we developed. Most of them were still pending at the time. Uh, they ended up subsequently assigning all those patents over to us, um, mm. which was great. That's amazing. And, and the one thing that they wanted was they wanted best pricing and, and access to the tools that we're developing because that's all they wanted was basically the best tools for their for the research labs so we basically had two years of development paid for at this pharmaceutical company we patented a bunch of stuff we developed a lot of cool new novel things and and the day that we uh, launched this business which was called Velocity 11 um, we had all this stuff already right so on day one we looked like a you know a multi-year company a month later, we launched officially launched the business at the the big sort of convention, the, the technology trade fair for for biotech research. Um, uh, it was called Lab Automation, um, and people were like, "Where did you guys come from?" Right? Or there were many people who had seen us while we were at at Insight, and and they thought it was incredible. So instantly, we had customers. Wow. Um, obviously, they were still prototypes that were in the lab, so we had a lot of work to get them to be sellable products, but that's how the journey began. And so we, we basically bootstrapped it. We each put uh, a lot of money in to start it. And in fact, that's a funny, that's a funny story, too, because, um, let's see, the summer before we... So we, we spun out 
kind of like January 1. That's sort of when we... Actually, we started in December. We formed the company in December 99. The summer before, <clears throat> the stock price at Insight was at like 16. In December, the stock price was at 99. And we all had stock. So, so um, when we decided to, to found the company, we basically sold all of our stock. And we had a bunch of cash that we could we used to fund to start the, the founding of the company. Two months later, the stock price is at two ninety eight, and I'm fairly certain had we sold our stock at two ninety eight, we would not have started our business because we would have had so much cash that we would have went to the beach for a year and we would have goofed <laughs> off. Right? We wouldn't have had made enough to retire or anything, but we'd have had enough money that we would have like wanted to goof off and play for a while. And so it was like sort of the sweet spot. The timing was just like perfect where if we would have had a little less, we couldn't have done it. If we had a little more, we probably wouldn't have done it. And so we, we had enough to like put it in and we were still hungry and we made it happen. So it was pretty really interesting how, how things play out for you usually. You know? What was Stanford like in you know, being sort of in that environment? And then you, know, you, you talked about the environment, the, 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 the tech environment at that time. Yeah, it, yeah, it, was, it was wild. Um, I, was, I was there sort of 97, 99, um, which was the, really the dot-com boom was just lighting up. And I, I, I was actually officially in a dual engineering MBA program. It was a joint program across. Um, and I'm much more of a geeky engineer, and I love do, doing design and building stuff. And, and so that side of it. And grad school at Stanford is, is pretty incredible because of the resources, the people, the access, extraordinary, right? I mean, really, really amazing. Um, and business school is similar in that the network and people that you meet are incredible. My experience, though, at the business school at that time was, you know, I took a few classes and all, everybody there was convinced they were going to start PetFood.com and make a billion dollars and they were going to be, like, rich and famous. And I just didn't get it. It didn't make any sense to me. I don't, I, like, I don't see what kind of value you're creating by making these stupid websites. And obviously, I was the one that was stupid, probably, because <laughs> I, maybe I could have started Google or something. Um, but uh, the vibe at the time was so much about, um, you know, starting these crazy internet companies. And I just wanted to build stuff. And so it didn't quite make sense to me. And I, I ended up, like, bailing out of the MBA side and just getting my engineering degree um, and running off to actually do stuff. Um, of course, I'd, I'd say subsequently, I, I kind of got my MBA the hard way by like <laughs> starting a business and having to learn through the school of hard knocks along the way. Um, but you know, Stanford's an amazing place, a beautiful campus, um, but very much an entrepreneurial vibe, right? So it's right in the heart of Silicon Valley, and and really that's where entrepreneurship is, is I'd say, really started in a ma in a major way. Um, so that's that's kind of woven into everybody's just the ethos there, um, which is incredible, right? It's really incredible. Um, and it, it, I had the bug. I still have the bug, right? So, so, so it, it served me quite well. How do you think uh, the engineering mindset that you've developed by uh, being very, you know, driven by robotics and studying these things, how do you think has that um, sort of improved your life or has, like, enabled you to, like, spot opportunities and, um, you know, sort of, become like really central to like um, your, you know, your life? Yeah, you know, I think um, candidly, I think the best possible degree for any path in life would be an engineering degree, honestly. Um, 
I say I say that sort of humorously, but um, mostly because it it's a way of thinking, right? It's a it's a pragmatic approach to, and it's a, it's a very much a problem solving approach, right? Engineering is really about, okay, what's what's the problem? Let's really understand the problem. What are our assumptions about the problem? What are our assumptions about the solutions? What are the resources we have? That's a very pragmatic and methodical way to think about solving things, right? And, and I think that is a very powerful mindset when tackling any problems. Um, I don't really do much engineering at all other than sort of on the weekends and fun projects. Mm-hmm. But I do think that a lot of what I do is tapping into that engineering mindset to deal with people problems or partnership problems or others. And I think about them the same way. It's like, okay, let me really understand what's happening here and what are my assumptions and what are their assumptions about... Like first principles thinking. Yeah, very much first principle thinking. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that, I believe, has served me incredibly well. Um, If you hadn't studied engineering, what other ways would there have been to get that mindset? Well, I think there's a lot of other... other, um, uh, I'd say philosophy is one that's very methodical and logical, right? It's very similar, right? It's first principles based, and and uh, most sciences and other other um, backgrounds are rigorous with sort of scientific principles and just trying to understand problems. Um, engineering is unique in that it's very problem solving oriented. You have a great like need to solve problems, mm. um, which many others don't, right? So you have a curiosity of problems and trying to understand them and, and figuring them out. I guess a lot of people get that from a lot of different parts of their lives as well. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to be increasingly important for the future of education. Um, because as education shifts away from learning, uh, you know, memorizing content and stuff in schools... Uh, and content is going to be delivered through these devices that we carry around with us, you know, more and more so. Like, we're, we're not going to learn calculus or English or anything from a person anymore. It's always it's going to be completely through technology. But that doesn't mean the human teacher is not needed anymore. The human teacher is actually even more important in that world to sort of help foster our curiosity and help us find our passion and then point it towards problems that were unique we're uniquely qualified to solve and then help us sort through all of these tools and I mean it's so noisy like there's thousands and thousands of online education platforms and things now and so the human teacher can help us find the right tool for what we need at the right time and it's more of a curator or an advisor or a guide in our lives uh, and that I, I think that's an extraordinary role in fact probably the reason most teachers became teachers was to pl- sort of play that guide and help people become uh, passionate uh, productive citizens in society and they've gotten stuck in having to get people to like understand algebra and to take the tests that's not a human job at all right that's a technology job so I, I think we're in a really fun exciting time to become even more human and, and that, I'd love for more people to have that mindset about where we're going versus the mindset of, like, this technology stuff is bad and I don't understand it and it's scary and we should stop it versus, hey, maybe maybe it will un- unlock something for us. It will allow us to be more authentic, be more ourselves, be more human in a lot of ways and do things that are uniquely human and let the technology deal with all that other stuff. How do you see the future of 
the university as an institution evolving? Yeah, I think it's the same way. I, honestly, I think the the future universities will probably look a lot more like Singularity University, which which means it's more about and, and more like grad schools. Right, grad schools are not about so much about just learning content. There is a research element, right? So there's definitely projects, very specific research projects where you're like diving in unique things. So I think that element is going to continue very similarly to the way it is today. But the rest of the universities should be about convening interesting people, helping them network and connect, but then helping them sort of unlock their potential, find projects and problems that they are excited about and passionate about. Because you have to be passionate about something, otherwise you will, it's going to be worthless. Um, you won't do anything real. Uh, and then making sure they have the resources to follow that path. And so, yes, content and learning and tools, those are going to be part of the content. But, you know, it's, it's going to be so much more about the mindset, about how to think about problems, how to, how to, how to develop a sort of a critical thinking mode. Um, yeah, critical thinking is actually a big part of education for the future. Um, so we, we haven't really done a good job of that. That's a really, that's a tough one. Like, how do you know what's true in today's world? And there's so many variants on stories and things. It's mm. finding finding signal in the noise. Is thinking it? for yourself. What's that? Thinking for yourself is difficult Th to teach. Th thinking for yourself is very difficult to teach, yeah. Um, and so I, 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 I'd love to see more more curricula around that um, and that being a much more important piece because how to think is, and I think every university would agree that's ultimately what they think they're doing. Yeah. Um, but maybe not as good a job as they, they could be. I mean, just look at the election cycle in the U.S. today, right? Early, yeah. Earlier you mentioned uh, how important it is to, like, discover your uniqueness and then find your, or, like, make your contribution to the world. Yeah. How do you think can we teach people to find their purpose and, and then to sort of, you know, go on that journey? If you think school is a very, um, you know, everybody goes to, like, the same, like, similar type of school yeah, and... Yeah. and, and and then, you know, now it's, like, cool to drop out when you're young, but, like, it didn't used to be like that for a long time. Yeah. And, and, and how can we, and it seems like then people get the same type of job, and it's, it's very, like, um, like a herd, herd behavior mm -hmm. type of thing. So yeah. how can we, like, make sure that, and I think it's already happening, that people can sort of follow their own path and, and discover really what they're good at. And so many problems, I think the solution is at the intersection of so many different things. And yeah, absolutely. I think now people study so many different things, and, and so they have a different... The perspective, yeah, which right. which enables them then to solve the problem, not inherently that they're better at anything, but right. because they have a different perspective. So, how can we foster like an environment that makes people curious and 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 sort of confident to like follow their own path? Well, I think you touched on a couple elements there that that are critical to it. One one is the 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 valuing the diversity of perspectives is an important tenet, I think, and that's that's a key part of what we we teach it and think how we think about what we're doing at Singular University. We want to bring the most diverse perspectives together to look at problems in totally fresh new ways, right? So you have to value that sort of diversity of perspectives and thoughts first as an institution so that then you can sort of curate that kind of kind of grouping. But the I, I would suggest maybe entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism is, is an, an important tenant um, and continuous learning. Those, those are those are sort of important mindsets 
that we should instill in everyone. And, and, and what I mean by that is that um, we need to get away from people thinking, oh, I'm going to work really hard and um, get the right answer and then I'm done. Or I'm going to work on this path and then I'm going to get my degree and then I've got it all figured out. And that's, like, I think that's one of the biggest uh, problems we have in society today because it really does create a pretty close-mindedness around other paths. Um, so from the earliest ages, we should be really working to foster this concept of tr continually trying new things and failing and trying new things and failing and trying new things and failing. And, and in, in that journey of experimenting and, and taking lots of different paths, it'll be really clear which paths are more exciting to you, right? And, and the ones that maybe you're more, uh, you, you have a unique capacity to, to, to do well in. And then following those paths further, but also still experimenting on the next variance on those paths. And, and this is more of a, it, it's not, uh, it's steering away from having this, uh, you still want to have big missions and goals, but as directions, not as the final ultimate thing that you have to achieve, right? We should always shoot for the moon directionally, but then be very excited to find ourselves up in, with the stars and then potentially finding another planet that's like now we're in other, going to other solar systems that we could go to. We didn't even see that far before, right? So finding a path and setting big goals but being very open to new paths along the way and, and being willing to adapt. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a very much an entrepreneurial mindset where you know you've got to like try lots of stuff and when it fails, you try something new and then when that fails, you try something new and when that fails, you try something new. Eventually something will stick that is really exciting and powerful. Um, but you have to be okay with like dealing with all the failure along the way. And, you know, there aren't many cultures that sort of get that in a, in a, in a, in a powerful way. And, and that's, the, that, that's probably the one thing about Silicon Valley that I think is extraordinary and unique. It's, man, failure is not even remotely a, a thing. Failure is like a sign of credibility and experience. And it's like you're on, onto something. Yeah, you're really onto something, right? <laughs> and, and, and God, anywhere else in the world, you get punished for being a failure if you yeah. fail. And that's just, that's ridiculous. Because the only way we learn is through failure. We don't learn by having the right answer all the time. The only time we actually learn something is when we try something and we screw it up. And we're like, oh, now I understand how to do it. And somehow when like we get to be adults and we get out of school, we forget that that's the only way we learn is by failing. And so we have to be willing to take risks and try new things. And so risk-taking and having a support ecosystem for risk-taking is really critically important and, and doesn't exist in a way that I think it should. And in that, ha that should be rooted in schooling. Like schooling should be about exploring and trying new things and testing and finding paths that might be interesting and allowing you to go down a path and then be able to pivot to a new path that sometimes that doesn't completely um, work along with setting some big goal. I think setting goals is really important to like for, for aspiration and drive, and it will push you farther than maybe you otherwise would go. But I think there's ways in which you can set a big goal directionally and then see what happens along the path. Have you built any habits or rituals 
that sort of encourages the mindset of abundance that, that you always mention, sort of the shift from scarcity to abundance, specifically how you can remind yourself on a daily basis of, of having that abundance mindset? Man, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I get, I get reminded about it almost daily yeah. just at SU because yeah. it's sort of in my face all the time. Um, and it's hard because Singular University is not, you know, a big exponential organization in its own right. I think we have elements of exponential organizations, but it's really hard to build an organization and, and to do things differently. And so often it's a lot easier to sort of fall back into the same mentality of, of scarcity, right? There's limited resources and we can only do this. And, and so it's partially for, for me and my team, it's just a, it, it, we have practice of just going back to, well, let's see, if we believe the world is abundant and we're looking at this problem in that lens, would we do something differently, right? So just asking ourselves that. For, for me personally, uh, my constant reminder every morning is my little two-and-a-half-year-old kid. He constantly reminds me about the world being limitless, right? He's always looking at things in such a new, fresh way that um, we don't have to be limited by our old legacy thinking and, and the constraints that we, we held ourselves to. Actually, there's... There's a fresh new approach, and, and there is a, just an infinite amount of possibilities for us going forward um, if we accept that as a, as a premise, as a working premise. And so, for me, his very expansive future is just a constant reminder to, to me to, to, to remember to make sure that that's the future that we're building for him, and so that he's not limited when he gets to be an adult. Um, and and I, honestly, I do feel like that's what I'm. That's why I'm so passionate, and ur- I have a real sense of urgency around getting people to think differently about technology and the possibilities of a different vision for the future. Because I'm looking at this, you know, two and a half year old, and thinking, man, in 20 years, if we if if we don't build that future, the alternative is really horrible, potentially really horrible, right? Um, sort of mid-case status quo and I don't think this is even possible it would be sort of the world we live in today it's okay it's good We, I'd say I live a great lifestyle there's a lot of people who do not I don't think that I don't think that's the world that I want to live in and I don't want him to live in um, and I don't want to accept that world I think the inequities we have on this planet for, for humanity is unacceptable So, and I think we can fix that um, the bigger challenge is, though, is as we continue this path with this scarcity mindset and power structures continue to sort of ebb and flow, there's a great threat of uh, things getting a lot worse. And we should work really hard to mitigate that downside risk. And, and for me, it's the best way to mitigate the downside risk is articulate an incredible upside that is something that everybody will agree to work towards and that vision hasn't really been well articulated Um, this future of abundance that we sort of toss around casually um, needs to be fleshed out right we need to we need to put some meat on the bones and understand okay well how would the economic system work in this new world of abundance how would the governance systems work in this new world of abundance Uh, 
what would we do as people? Like, what would our what would our um, uh, uh, lifestyles be like? What how would we how would we focus our attention and spend our time? And not that we need to prescribe all those things, but we do need to articulate some scenarios in which it's exciting and interesting for people and not scary. Because right now, the only the only visions for the future that people are talking about are these horrible zombie apocalypse stories. And that is not the future I want to live in, and I don't, definitely don't want my kid to see that day. But that's the only story we seem to be telling ourselves. And, and so it's time to, be, time to be a little more creative uh, with... Now, of course, we're biologically wired to be attracted to the scary bad stories because that we've got this thing called the amygdala, amygdala right so that old crocodile brain it it it's a flight or uh, uh, fight response for things and right the people that uh, ran into the bushes thinking hey maybe that shaking bush is actually a uh, another type of fruit that I've never seen before those are the ones that got eaten by the lions right so that has evolved out of our species so it makes sense that we would be more attuned to the scary stories but we can consciously choose to think otherwise um, that's the great gift that homo sapiens have and so let's let's use it and, and create a different future so um, a great analogy is the American Revolution when you know the founding fathers reimagined the world and it sort of um, goes back to what you're saying when when people were really imagining something entirely different and yeah it wasn't perfect but then they actually did that, and they, they created a new political operating system. When you look at the world today, um, sort of there's a lot of problems at the intersection of governance and technology. Not only are people fearful, like you say, but yep. also um, there's so much regulation. If you think of so many technologies are really ready yep. AI, because of AI and other yep. advances, yep. but they need to be implemented into society. And, yep. and I think that's sometimes even harder to do because you know a lot of politicians don't have that abundance mindset. Well, they don't, for one, they're not even remotely aware of what's happening, and they don't have, know how to understand it. So, so how, how, how can you, or how can we build this sort of platform, or this new structure where, where you can have then people come in and then really, like, you know, build a new world? Or do we have to go to Mars for this to happen? And yeah, no, I, I don't think we have to go to Mars. Um, I think we will go to Mars, but I don't think we have to. Um, I, I think, so... For for me, one of the one of the things that I keep coming back to is this this notion that we're just not that imaginative, right? We we have a hard time looking at a white piece of paper and seeing a beautiful picture. Um, some of us can, right? There's a you know I'd say there's probably twenty to thirty percent of the population that that can very easily imagine or uh, something different towards towards that future. Um, the rest of us have to be, we have to see that picture to even know what we're talking about, right? So from that standpoint, um, we need to build models. We run, need to run experiments. And are those experiments going to happen in the U.S.? Maybe some of them, but most of them are not because, as you said, we're way overregulated. There's too much legacy infrastructure and history there and too many uh, bureaucratic antibodies that are going to never allow any of that stuff to happen. But there are lots of places in the world that don't have the same bureaucratic antibodies. Um, you have interesting capabilities in cities around the world where you've got a mayor and you've got municipalities and a much smaller population. 
that they can be much more adaptable to trying new things locally that otherwise you couldn't at a nation level. And you also have small nations that kind of operate more like cities, right? That have a couple million people in population and, and maybe they have a governance structure that is not quite so, maybe I'll say democratic, or maybe it's like, you know, a hybrid dem democracy that if they decide they, they want to do something, then they do it. Right. So, so you know, some examples I've given, I gave yesterday here was um, in in Uruguay in South America. Uruguay is a three million person country. Uh, it's a democracy, but uh, with sort of a visionary president um, who basically tries to paint a picture of this future of Uruguay that everybody gets behind. Um, and in Uruguay, they tested the one laptop per child program when it came out, that failed, and then they rebooted it, and they have a public-private partnership with a company that now helps distribute computers and tablets to 100% of kids in primary, secondary, and technical schools, right? So everybody has techn technology. Of course, having a computer that's not connected to the internet is a waste of time, so they also had to figure out infrastructure with the local municipalities and cities to make sure that they have connections to the internet and make sure all the schools are connected to the internet. It was a huge project which turned into a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunities for people. Um, and they just did it because they knew how important it was. And now they're teaching ro 